Got a good one today, Joe. People are in for a treat. Right. And they're not, they're going to learn the truth. Right? Yes. No, it's going to be an error not free. Not just a truth, the truth. We, we are all set up here with our administrative structure of oral argument and faculty podcast them mm. to deliver nothing but the truth. Okay. Institutionally designed. Mm. Not to make any errors, right? <laughs> is, that, is that right? You're setting a high bar here, <laughs> my friend. I am. So we've got we've got Allison Larson of the William and Mary Law School. Yes, here to talk about three amazing papers, right? Which and we sh- have to commend to everyone in the strongest terms. They're terrific. And like like all of our guests, as we'll find out, um, we kind of screened her through Stephen Colbert just yeah, to be sure were... she was up to snuff. Exactly. For us, right. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, we got, we got feedback. We're going to do that another time. Yeah. We're going to get right into it because we don't, you know, we don't want to obscure anything that comes after with any nonsense. Right, Joe? Correct. Boom. Let's do it. So, uh, Allison, you're, you're our first alum from the Colbert Report. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which is amazing. My three minutes of fame. Um, yeah, it was, um, how did that come about? Was- Cause you, you spoke with him about the stuff you're going to talk to us about. How'd that come yeah. about? I tell you, it was really random. So um, the last paper I wrote, the one about the factual claims, um, Adam Liptak highlighted it in the New York Times. And about less than a week later, I was actually at soccer practice with my child and my husband, who's the coach. And I got a call and it was just the call had been forwarded from the work line to my cell phone. And it was, she said, hi, I'm a producer for the Colbert Report and Stephen read your article and wants to have you on the show. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. what? Time out, coach. Time out, coach. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was, they flew me up there five days later. So Fun. it all happened really quickly. I, I didn't meet with him beforehand, which was surprising. It was, it was all like everything. My entire interaction with him was on television. Wow. Um, but it it was pretty crazy. So even he didn't come in the green room in advance or anything like that. He came in for thirty seconds and he just said, "My name is Stephen Colbert. Uh, I play a buffoon on television. I really <laughs> liked your article, but I'm going to pretend I didn't. See you out there. That's all." <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. I've heard. I think that's what he what he did on that show with every guest, yeah. right? Because he has to tell you, "My character is an idiot," because a lot of people don't d- didn't know. Th- yeah. I, I don't know if a lot of people. I think you know. He says, "I'm Stephen Colbert." You're like, "Yeah, duh." You know. So, how do you but, feel about about the appearance? Because I, I mean, as a as an observer who doesn't know you and and clearly doesn't know him, uh, I thought it was great. You seemed like you were having fun. You got a really great point that you made clearly and well, and he seemed well, to get you. it. And so it was like there was some chemistry, a fun. It just seemed <laughs> it seemed great. He was. I think he was very gentle with me. Um, I, so, uh, to truth be told, I didn't watch a lot of the report before the invitation. But that during those five days, I watched a ton, and <laughs> I learned that he has this shtick about truthiness. Mm-hmm. And once yeah. I learned that, you know, the idea that if it feels like the truth, it is the truth. Once I learned that, I felt like okay, he's my shtick is going to fit with his shtick. You yeah. know, he's yeah, so he, he's going to get it. He's going to get it. And then they, um, the producer told me the only advice she gave me was, um, don't try to be funny. Right. So I was like, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) That's his job. (laughs) Yeah. I just let him take the lead and he was kind to me and gentle. And the only thing I did that was, I don't know if you saw this. The only thing he told me or the producer said was don't get out of the chair. And as soon as, as soon as the interview was over, the first thing I did was get out of the chair and he grabbed my arms and he was like, no, 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 don't go anywhere. And then (laughs) they clapped again and I did it again. I tried to get out of the chair again. I was so nervous that he grabbed my arms again. (laughs) An instinctive reaction. It's just to get up and bolt as soon as you're done. Yeah. Yeah. What an exciting thing. And, and how, uh, didn't this come up on the, on the show we did? Two weeks ago, no, not two weeks ago now, the, the police show, the police body cam show that we did with Professor Simonson was uh, the, the Stephen Colbert's White House Correspondence Dinner. Oh, oh I think, yeah, I think you did mention that. Yeah, I, I mean, I mentioned that every chance I get. Because it was just <laughs> so unbelievable. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, so, so it's almost unfair, Allie, that you hadn't watched a lot of the rapport. And you even, you know, let's just make a correction in show because I know you're into correcting facts. Um, yes. It's the it's pronounced rapport, not report. Right. Uh, I learned that right. No T. Right. Right. The T no, is silent. The T is, <laughs> T is totally silent, as and, it is in Colbert. Yeah. Right. So so you were you were kind of plucked out of non fandom. 
to, that, to but to now make this he's, appearance. he's made me a fan. Now I'm a big fan. I mean, I think he's wonderful. All, so. all it takes is one exposure. I think all right? ex- all it takes. That's right. He okay. was charming. We've got one other preliminary matter to get out of the way before we get to the meat of this thing, because you know we know from our reviews that people love it when we elliptically avoid the meat of an issue, right, Joe? For hours at a time. <laughs> yeah. Hours, yeah, that's right. Oh, great. Uh, okay. Yeah, this is this is this is kind of up. Our, this is like the opposite of truthiness. It's it's like non factiness. <laughs> I know what it is. <laughs> Ellipticity, I'm not sure what you would call it, but no, but this is really important. I think this has to be settled right away. Okay. And that's the word A-M-I-C-U-S. Yeah. So you knew this was coming, right? I so um or 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 like or as with the Colbert report, you've never listened to the show before. So you don't you didn't know what to expect. No, I so this is a this plagues me whether to say amiki or uh, amicus or wait, amicus or amicus. And um I just decided when I got on the on the Colbert show, I was going to do whatever he did (laughs) (laughs) so that I didn't sound like, I don't know, a snotty professor or something. Um, And I've heard worse ideas than to let Stephen Colbert decide this matter once and for all. Yes, I think that's right. So that's been my I'm like a chameleon. However (laughs) you guys say it, I will say it. (laughs) But well, we we're looking for expert judgment here. You know, I'm not just in, in a way that's like just citing the truthiness of the pronunciation. Yeah, of, that's true. Actually, that's very meta. That's what we do around here. Allie. I'm not looking for expert judgment. I'm looking for confirmation of my priors. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I really yeah, think then you're in the right. You're in the with is the right podcast to do that. We're going to settle this thing right now. So let's just say in your heart of hearts. How do you how do you pronounce it in the in the in the kind of set of of reference grade speakers think, that are in your head? How does it sound? So. I worked, I think Amicus. So I worked for Walter Dellinger and that's how he said it, which I don't think is actually right. But because that was the first time I really had prolonged exposure to the word, it's in my, like, that's my instinct. I wonder if that's why Dahlia Lithwick pronounces that, pronounces it that way. Because she's done quite a few things with Walter Dellinger at Slate. Yeah. And so it might be that the redoubtable, irrefragible, and inestimable Dahlia Lithwick picked that up from him. <laughs> it could be. I, or maybe he got it from her. It, it could be. Oh, good. That could be. I, I think one thing, it, you know, her show, Amicus, would not work if it were called Amicus. Right. It like, fits her show. Because Amicus sounds like friend. Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, Amicus sounds like you're speaking Latin. And that's what well, we're going to do here. Well, yeah, I, so, I think Amicus sounds like, um, like, like the way an American would say it. <laughs> <laughs> It does. So, it does have a, in my unsophisticated manner. It does make me think Colbert would have preferred Amicus because it starts like America, right? That's yeah, that's, yeah. Amicus sounds. It does sound more. It sounds both more, um, uh, more fussy and and dusty, and it also does sound more British. And that and that may be the <laughs> yeah. same thing. I. It's probably right. <laughs> I'm thinking two two things immediately here that that we need to cover. One is um, that of course the correct pronunciation is is how the the Latins would have pronounced it. And that makes me think of of an old quote from Dan Quayle, who, upon going to Latin America to conduct what I'm sure were very important negotiations, yes. mentioned to the reporter pool, the reporting pool that he wished he'd studied Latin in high school better so that he could <laughs> oh converse with my. people in Latin America. Yeah. Yes. Oh, no. Is that yeah. a true story? This is... It, Grown. Look, does, it, does it matter whether it's true, really, Allie? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh. I just said it. You can cite what I just said. Okay, okay we, that's true. Uh, now, the, the other thing such, that makes me think of is the – well, go ahead. Did we have you, such limited time. We yeah, need, to, we well, need but, to stop horsing around. We do need to stop horsing around, but I don't think we can avoid the kind of – the hellacious pronunciation unleashed a, on us by one Justice Breyer recently. Uh, <laughs> what's that? Uh, it's not we, recent. It's 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 only recent to me because I've been listening to so many Supreme Court oral argument recordings right. in the last year that yeah, like, he, I don't he, even know if we can say it. But so, there's, I even heard one other justice say this recently, and I I don't remember who it was, but it, my heart sank. And yeah, I, because this cannot spread. I'm otherwise a fan of Justice Breyer oral argument, and we have debated this before, Joe. We have. But do you want to say it, or do you want me to say it? He says a micus. According to the Amicus briefs here. Oh, yeah, that's right. He does say that. (laughs) (laughs) And that is a fetid swamp of hell. I mean, that is so unacceptable. Amicus. Sounds like a plant. Can you imagine Dahlia's podcast being called Amicus? It sounds like... It never would have been approved. It never would have launched. It never would have happened. Amicus. It has has kind of like a metallic... Or disease. Like, every time he says that, I picture this like gleaming silver shield but in truth i know that the word would be applied to some kind of like car wax kind of thing 
You know what I mean? Like if it would be a trade name for something you would put on your car to protect the metal from rusting back in the 70s. Yeah. Like a micus. And a micus treatment. Yeah, exactly. But- to me, it's this, It's like the brand name you would give a catheter to make sure that everyone <laughs> oh knows it's really going to hurt. <laughs> like, um, you know, the micus spike catheter. Like, Yikes. <laughs> Well, Allie, I think this is all we have time for. It's been great having you on today. I, think, <laughs> I didn't expect that one. <laughs> I, okay, so I, I, I'll just say what I usually say, Amicus, yeah, but I, I like too. Amicus better. Yeah. So I don't know what that says about I'll me. I'll go either way. If you, if you guys alternate, I'll alternate. Let's just, we'll even throw an Amicus in there every now and then. We could okay. just say, we could just say friend. So, all right. So why are we talking about this? Allie, do you want to set this? So I, I have, um, I looked again at two of your papers uh, today. The most recent one, which we can talk the Supreme Court bar and, and uh, mm-hmm. kind of the, the wranglers and whisperers of yeah. Amicus briefs. <laughs> and, and then the, uh, and then the one that you talked about with Colbert. And I think, you know, these are all of a piece, kind of the, administrative law structure of the Supreme Court. There's so much to talk about here. And I, and I sort of looked at the first and third more so. Um, and the, the first one that kind of kicked it all off in, in my mind with the with uh, judicial in-house fact-finding. Right. And really it was when we talked to Amanda Frost about the Roe against Gibson Seventh Circuit case. Oh, I, don't, I know that case. Yeah, so I'm not surprising that you do. It's Judge mm-hmm. Posner. Um, yeah, Posner mm-hmm. and Hamilton kind of going out at hammer and tong with with what appellate court judges should be doing with respect to, I think in that instance, adjudicative facts, not legislative facts. That line is so fuzzy. It is, but um, uh, which is interesting in and of itself. How do you see these three projects kind of fitting together, and what do you think the 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 main what's the main thing about all this that that drew you to it and kind of attracts yeah. you to it as a problem of judging? And one little spin on that. Let's not assume that the listeners know the difference between adjudicative and legislative facts and because all, all these are terms that if, if you didn't necessarily coin, Allie, but like are important to this. Arc. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I had a professor once tell me that she was inspired by irritation. And I think that's right for me, too. So this this itch, I guess, started back when I was um, working at a, at a law firm. And I noticed that a lot of the briefs we were writing were not about the law at all. They were about factual claims. And I guess I started thinking um, th- the Supreme Court seemed hungry for that factual information. And that's an observation I remember from when I was clerking as well. So all of these different projects that you mentioned come from that initial curiosity about, well, the way you, in law school, you learn that the facts in appellate um, cases are set in stone, you know, they're cold, they come in a record. Um, And that just didn't seem to fit with what I was observing. And then as I dug into it a little bit more, I learned of this distinction that you mentioned between adjudicative facts and legislative facts. And the distinction is adjudicative facts are the facts that I was originally thinking of, the facts of the case, like the who, what, when, where, why the jury kind of effects, the whodunit facts, I think I've called it before. And then the legislative facts are more facts about the world, generalized observances. And those don't have to come through the regular um, evidentiary rules or the regular um, adversary process. They're exempt in this uh, rule, this judicial notice rule. So a lot of the observations that are factual observations that I saw the court making, I think can be classified as legislative facts, facts about the world. But they also make these generalized factual claims it's sort of into adjudicative facts as well. So uh, there was a the case, the um, capital sentencing case, the case about Glossop, I think is what it was called. Yeah. There's a big debate about um, what these drugs actually do to the body that they use in lethal injection. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's a adjudicated fact or a legislative fact. The justices seem to treat it as an adjudicated fact and they defer to the lower court. They, I'm sorry, they don't defer. Um, but I, I think you could kind of repackage that claim in either way. Um, so the line between these two types of fact, I think is fuzzy at best. And, what really influences me in my work generally is the the um, influence of the internet. So because we all just have such, we have access to infinite amounts of information, that I think is influencing both the way we can cite, the way we use authorities, and also um, the, the how comfortable we are with facts, right? I mean, we, we all just seem like 
like the Colbert says, if it feels like the truth, it is the truth, right? And I think when um, you're talking about the highest court, I think that the, the, that distinction between adjudicative and legislative breaks down even further because we all know that even when the court is talking about you know, you you could say in the Glossop case, well, what will this particular prisoner experience with this right. drug? Well, the only reason we're talking about it is because we know that it's a practice that's going to affect a lot more people. Because if this is approved here, it's going to get adopted. This is how the original lethal cocktail developed in the first place, right? It right. got developed in a single place, and then it got propagated to all these other places. So that 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 distinction between it's just a fact for this case for today versus it's a fact about uh, the general observances of the world, that's it, going to break down can, when you're talking I, about the Supreme yeah. Court, right? Can I try they, another twist? They don't take individual cases just to right. do error correction. Well, let me try another twist on that, because one, one is like the the, the distinction – it kind of reminds me of the distinction between adjudication and legislation generally you see in cases where where courts will sometimes – there are like three different ways you can make that distinction that all kind of get at this like intuition we have about what it is. And in this case – in, in addition to like the the longstanding general fact versus the very specific fact, I'm thinking of uh, a way that it might map onto the roles better. Which I'm getting this from your from your papers and and other things you've cited, Ali. I think, but uh, if we think about the difference between like primary and secondary rules that we've talked about on the show before, but like just think of the speed limit, right? The speed limit's 55 miles per hour, and a court is going to find facts to decide a case, right? And one of those facts is going to be how fast were you driving, right? And there'll be evidence of that fact, and the point is that that fact is the rule requires the rule suggests that the outcome of a case will turn on that finding of fact but and this is with the rise of legal realism we've started to understand better or we began to understand better and now i think everybody is a realist everybody accepts this fact that the rules themselves even uh, uh in, you know the rule about what the speed limit is or how much you can go over but take go away from the speed limit think just think about cruel and unusual punishment right there's a rule that states can't uh impose cruel and unusual punishment but what does that mean? You know, you have to elaborate that rule further in a way that will transcend a single case, right? It, it, does it allow for the execution of minors? Does it allow for execution in non-capital cases? These kinds of things, right? And facts are inevitably, and this is the legal realist point, facts and beliefs about things will cause you to prefer one kind of rule over another, right? So in other, way, in other words, like facts are inputs to primary rules, and that's what you might call an adjudicative fact. But facts are also inputs in the application of secondary rules that allow for the creation of primary rules, right? It's a fact, you know, and this is why they're called legislative facts, right? The, the legislature holds hearings to decide whether to pass a bill this way or that way. So too, the Supreme Court or lower courts in trying to formulate a rule or a common law court trying to decide what the rule of liability should be in, in employer-employee situations. Like, is it going to be considering facts of the world to, in order to fashion a generalized rule? Now, if that's the distinction, I think it maps on 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 well to the the further distinction you make, Ali, between or at least that you refer to between the court and its uh, the court as a um, how do you, how do you call how do you this is basically the adjudication legislation distinction at the level of the court yeah. Law declare. Yeah, yeah. yeah 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 so I it, I don't know if you want to take all that mess that I just went into and no I, I mean I think what you say makes a lot of sense it reminds me a lot of David David Fagman's work I mean the maybe a, a concrete example that's helpful is the violent video games case from a couple of years ago. Yeah. So there they're trying to come up with a rule. Uh, what does the First Amendment protect? Does it protect uh, minor access for my, to minors, to people under 18? Uh, do they have access to these violent video games under the First Amendment? And they, in order to answer that question, they ask, well, what is the effect of these games on the neurological development of children? That's, I mean, it, that's the question, and that is as facty I think it's okay to use the word facty. I've, I get teased about that uh, on the faculty here that I use the word facty. But that's about as facty of a question as you get. Um, you know, like, not at all legal. Yeah. And it's being used to develop a legal rule, as you say. And perhaps that, you know, what in some ways, I, I know people think that the court shouldn't be digesting neuroscience, neuroscience studies and figuring out which ones they think are credible. But on the other hand, if they're making a rule that's going to govern the country, shouldn't they be informed on the like practical consequences to their decisions? That seems to me the ultimate legal realist point, right? That basically all of our preferences for rules 
have causes, right? And those causes are 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 not kind of like in you know uh, um, uh, endogenous to the law, right? They have our our preferences for rules are exogenous. In other words, we have we have believe things about the world which come right. from outside the law that cause us to prefer one rule over the other. And inevitably, those beliefs are based in some kind of belief. Well, they are beliefs about facts. They're beliefs about truth. And, and you know, so I, I think once you jump into legal realism, right, that, that that is the case, you're inevitably going to come to this point, right, where you where the rules themselves depend on fact finding. So it raises this institutional question about how is that factual input without getting hung up on a distinction about adjudication and legislation unless it helps you make progress. How, how are you institutionally going to get that factual material in front of the judges in a way they can best make use of by their own lights? They, they have an understanding exactly. of what they want to do and, and what role it's going to play. So how do we get that stuff in front? I mean, it seems to me that's what's so terrific about what you're doing. Is yeah. you're, you're asking institutional questions about that process. Taking for granted that this is going to happen. Like yeah. that there's no right. way to avoid legislative fact-finding because there's no way to avoid the formulation of rules and there's no way to go back to the era I mean, the where, rules for us. The law's yeah. for us. We're not for it. So, right. so of course, facts are going to play a big role because it's facts about our world and it's law about our world. And so the two have to get melded together. Yeah, so how does this happen? And that ship has sailed, right? I mean, yeah. like totally. that, that's the world we're in. Um, and how, how do they educate themselves? So I, I think- And how the should first, they? Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I wrote that first paper about in-house fact-finding, um, I, I had a lot of concern about sort of the lack of a safety net. So if there's no um, adversarial process, there's no way to test the factual claims, that makes me very nervous that the justices will either be misled or perhaps more likely will just, you know, do the natural human thing of, confirmation, like con confirm what they already think without really um, working through it. And I think that concern has, has gone throughout all of my work. The last paper I wrote is a little bit different because it, it sort of uses the, the institutional process that we have of the Supreme Court bar, this institutional facet, I guess, as a way to, as a way to perhaps uh, stem the reliability, the unreliability concerns. Um, but all in all, that's been my driving, the driving normative um, force in my work is fear that we have this new tool, this ability to get this factual information to the justices quickly. And I'm, I'm afraid that we're not going to be responsible with it. And the new tool is web browsers the, and the internet. Yeah. I mean, how quickly you can come up with a brief that is a, is a factual expert, you know, a Brandeis brief, as they call it. You know, the, the Brandeis brief is the sort of the pioneer of these kinds of um, factual briefs and not legal argument briefs, but it's it's so easy to assemble those now, um, and that makes me worried. Anybody can be a factual expert. Anybody well, can gather the factual information they need. Yeah, there there are two ways this this happens, though, right? I mean, one of them is the kind of thing we dealt with with, with Amanda Frost. That's if you're a judge and you're thinking, yeah, maybe at the appellate level. I'm not sure if the rule should be A or B. I'm not sure if the rule should be that uh, violent video games can be restricted based on you know an intermediate scrutiny type finding or a Rational. I'm not sure how that should work. And so that's going to depend on some facts. And so how does anybody decide anything like that these days? You type some stuff into Google. You Google, right. right. Yeah. And, and uh, or DuckDuckGo. Let's, there, there are alternatives. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. And, and, <laughs> oh, it's great. It's great. Okay. It's faster. Anyways, <laughs> uh, but, but like, or you go to scholar.google.com. So there are many ways that you kind of figure out what's true, right? Right. And and so uh, so so one set of questions is to what degree should judges be able to do that when they are decide you know to what extent should they be able to augment their own thoughts and 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 feelings with right. facts that they find on the internet you know as in house an, fact finding yeah right. exactly like you talk about in your paper like to what extent should the internet be the extension of the brain because if they don't Google and they just rely on the papers they're inevitably going to be thinking about like what they think right yeah. and they may what be recalling things said. they think they know yeah exactly right. Uh, and then the, then the separate question is to, you know, to the degree that we want to augment that process with some kind of official uh, litigation, right, that there should be briefs which do more, which kind of fill in that Googling uh, uh, or, or organize it in some way. How should that occur, right? And exactly. what, what, are, what are your thoughts about the first one? Just take that one. Is it, you want to tell us about your, that, yeah. that paper just really quickly? So, yeah, I was, that, I was surprised when I started researching that one. And in that paper, I thought of 
amicus briefs as part of the adversarial process. And I know you that's sort of you can debate that question. But um, for the purposes of that project, I put all briefs in the same bucket. And then I look to see how many times does the court cite a factual authority um, that doesn't come from any of the briefs. So I looked, I looked for a negative, basically. I found the factual authorities and then had, with a team of very wonderful research assistants, looked through all the briefs to see if that factual authority came from the briefs or not. Um, and I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I was really surprised at how often they're outside all of the briefs. So party briefs, amicus briefs, what have you. Um, and to me, that, that makes me nervous because um, you, you don't have any sort of testing of those, of those Google searches. You have the Supreme Court librarians, and they're wonderful. Um, but, you know, you, you could also have a law clerk like me that doesn't know what she's doing out there Googling and finding <laughs> things that seem to fit the pre-existing worldview of either the law clerk or the justice or what would fit nicely in the argument. Um, and to me, that seems ripe with uh, fraught with danger. What would you say to a person who reads that? And uh, it sounds like you're describing the 2012 paper. What would you say yeah. to a person who reads that and who reacts as follows? Gosh, um, in a way, it's a, it's, there seems to be a disconnect between the lawyers and the judges, because the lawyers ought to have been able to anticipate that they would focus yeah. on that factual question and ought to have been able to provide them the information they needed. And that might that intuition might get underscored by the by the most recent paper, the Amicus Machine, where the lawyers do spend an enormous amount of time trying yeah. to coordinate effectively to make sure the um, the Amicus briefs do provide the justices what the lawyers think they need. So yeah. so how could it be that this very well trained, very successful, very highly credentialed Supreme Court bar is so bad at getting the justices what they want. Well, I think that I don't think they're bad at it. I think they're good at it, but I think the task is just too large for anyone. So um, I was talking to one of the Supreme Court advocates that we interviewed um, for our most recent project, and he said, basically, Allie, the record now is the World Wide Web. So it's just impossible to master that kind of record. Like gone are the days when to be a really good advocate in the Solicitor General's office or at one of these fancy firms, you have essentially memorized the record or been through every piece of paper in the record. Now it's just it's just too big of a task to be able to know exactly what they're going to ask you about. And some of these, even in this term, like the, if you look at the oral argument transcripts, the questions are factual questions, some of which I'm sure the lawyers anticipated, but I, I just think it's too big of a task to ask them to anticipate all of it. Like, they're not r mind readers. So what's the institutional upshot of that? Oh, yeah, like, I don't what, have an so answer. What, it's not an answer. It's just, like, what do you do next? If that's the case, if it's the case that um, you, can, you can do your first pass and get a great set of briefs that contain lots of rich factual information, and let's assume it's working really well, so the material in the briefs isn't the kind of stuff you critique in your second paper, which is, you know, people just kind of running the risk of faking things and yeah, and, a little unreliable right yeah so so if even if it's working really well and assume it is right um it's still not going to be all that the justices or any appellate judge might want yeah right there's so they're right. still going to turn to the google machine and say tell me more right what's right. the institutional upshot of that what's your what's the blue sky thinking now about what could we do i mean whether they should google or not yeah, or well, assume they're going to. I mean, you can't stop yeah. them, can you? You could yeah. you could create a rule that said don't do it, but I don't think that's going to be effective. That just means they'll do it and not tell anyone. Yeah, or they'll cite. They just won't. They won't have factual claim, factual authority cited. They'll just make like a normative claim without a citation. That yeah. was exactly my concern, right? Yeah. That that if that that at least with this world of citing even unreliable sources, the fact is in there, right? The fact is now in there. And so yeah. if there's dispute about that fact in a site. later case, well, and the site, but more importantly than anything, so I, they're, they're making their factual claims clear in the brief. So at least you have a target in they the future. Make it clear, they make it clear by citing something. that They make it clear that they think of it as a thing that needs support. Yeah, but if in the partial birth abortion case, Carhart, that uh, Kennedy yeah. decided, right? So if, if, you know, I can imagine an earlier age where there would have been no 
citations right. to this, but just a, um, you know, it stands to reason that, right, right some, at least some mothers uh, would be mothers regret their decision, blah, blah, and it, without any citation at okay. all, right? Can't you imagine? Yeah. I can imagine that, right? I can, sure. And, yeah. and I want him, if that's part of his reason, because I actually think the best opinions are the ones which state as well as you can what's going on in your brain, what's causing you to think this thing. Okay. Um, and, and if that st- if that fact is actually important to him, maybe not outcome determinative. I know you have a a way of talking about outcome determinativeness, oh, it, which is I've, hard, right? It's difficult. Yeah, that's but, really hard. Um, and you try to code for it. Maybe we can hear about that. But um, but but if that was important to him, like, and he writes that down in the brief, at least it gives us in the future a way to say, you know, are we still committed to this idea? You keep saying the brief. Do you mean the opinion? Yeah, I mean the opinion. Okay. Yeah, I mean the opinion. But he's difference. Like, he yeah, of the course. Brief in the opinion. Is that what you're talking about? When no. he, he cites to that the in Carhartt, he cites to that amicus brief yeah. in the opinion. Yeah, yeah. And, and I misspoke, and Joe's right to correct me. I, I misspeak all the time. But what, what I'm saying is that even if, like, so I can imagine an earlier age where, in his opinion, he would not have cited to anything. He oh, would right, have just I said was it, following you. Yeah. yeah, he would have just said it stands to reason that blah, 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 blah. And, um, and that would be like the legal realist world where he's acknowledging that law should depend on facts and real world things and consequences, but not one which is in, which is invaded by um, the fact that, you know, we don't have arguments, unresolved arguments in bars anymore about things before people start yeah. reaching for their iPhones, right? So yeah. now, the, now the world is like, you know, if you're going to have an argument in a bar about something, someone's right. going to reach for an iPhone. So, so Allison, what do you make of the fact that although it's true in a, in a prior world, there wouldn't have been a, maybe an urge to cite some authority after the factual assertion, um, uh, some women regret, or maybe many women regret having an abortion. There is now an effort to cite something. What do you make of that fact? Of the yeah. of the of the fact that judges behave this way, add citations to things that seem like authority. What's going yeah, on there? I think it's a sign of the times. I mean, I think it's a sign. There's there's a, like a legitimacy that comes from having an authority. Uh, and I think it's a sign of how easy it is to get those authorities now. Um, people have said to me that it's also a sign of uh, the influence of law clerks, you know, in the same way that in a law review article, the editors really want to have, like they feel naked without a footnote with another citation, that that dynamic is also um, alive and well at the Supreme Court. I don't know if that's true, but I've heard that speculation. Um, to me, authorities matter. So in all of Reaction to all of my work, I, I've had the same sort of who cares? Aren't they, isn't this all just window dressing? Aren't these just citations just, um, you know, just to cover their tushes, I guess. Can I say that? I can say that. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, and and I, I hear that. I hear that complaint. You know, I'm, not, I'm not deaf to that. But I think to me, th- those authorities, like citing that brief, it has consequences, consequences both for the readers of the opinions, like the legal audience, and also political consequences. So Reva Siegel has this great article where she talks about the citation of that brief the in the abortion case and the effect it had on the anti-abortion movement, sort of a rallying cry. The Supreme Court is listening. Like, let's, we have to, we have to up our, um, up our cause for this women's protective sort of rationale for abortion restrictions, which hadn't really um, taken off before then. So that's that's a consequence that comes from the authority, the citation to the brief, not just the naked claim of some women probably, it stands to reason some women do that. Like it was it was the actual authority that made the difference. So to me, that matters. What, what about, so to push on that a little bit further, I mean, I, I think I have the, I think, I think this is what I think, <laughs> that okay. this is another manifestation of the of kind of a crisis which is evolving because of lawyers' traditional model of truth. And, and the model of truth very much involves authority. And, you you know, you use that word a lot and is it's a word that lawyers are well familiar with and it has a particular meaning within law. And I think the best justification for the role of authority in law has to do with coordination and reliance rather than, right, obedience or something else. And this is the way like we've it's been well understood in law right that we're not, we don't know everything but right. what distinguishes law from science is that we have to make decisions we can't wait in, until the evidence comes in because people are fighting about it. we got to make a decision as a society you know you have to do something mm-hmm. and so the model of truth within law historically has understood that we have to make decisions based on hunches and 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 best guesses but 
I think because of the, maybe because of the slipperiness of these terms, um, maybe because the way we talk about like there's what's you know we we now acknowledge that the best rule depends on what's actually true, and now we have a much more expansive uh, way of accessing what might be true, right, and piecing it together. But we don't do it the way that scientists do, right? And right. here I'll refer to something I refer to this a lot because I think it's a really great piece that's underlooked, and that's um. Uh, Kathy Zeiler and Greg Class's piece on the endowment effect, or endow- what they call endowment theory, right? Where, where the, the claim there is that the endowment effect, which may actually be false um, as an instantaneous kind of shift in, in, in valuation because of entitlement, it's part of the problem there is that lawyers use studies as cases, right? We, we work by analogy. Like we take something as an authority and then our instinct is to take that set of authorities and interpolate a rule or conclusion between them. But scientists don't really use studies that way. Studies confirm, you know, they're set up they're, and, and a clever study is one that helps to really gin this up, right? They, they add support for, they detract from, or potentially even completely falsify a theory. And so part of what they're doing in that piece is to say that lawyers should be working not at the level of experiment, but the, at the level of scientific theory, you know, the best explanation for things. And I feel like this is somewhat. Uh, this is another aspect of that, right? Like so much of what goes into these rules kind of depends on what's true. But our whole model for ferreting out truth, like in, you know, well, part of it depends on the adversary process and the yeah, and, and the way that the adversary process kind of filters through, quote unquote, authority. I, I, I don't know. I've, I've, I'm kind of reaching here to kind of figure out what I really think about this. But I think there's a basic crisis in the model of truth. Uh, that lawyers use, which and this is like a manifestation of that, and may, maybe the ultimate manifestation of it. I don't know. I mean, does that does that ring true to you, or I'm not being precise enough? I'm not sure. No, I think I I think so. I mean, I'm not completely convinced that what scientists do and what lawyers do are at all the same. Um, maybe that's not fatal to to the observation you're making, but I'm not sure that. And maybe this is also telling that we are looking for truth in the same way that scientists are looking for truth. Um, and that's, I think, because our rules that we shape can change over time. It's, it's less uh, permanent. I guess the same is true with science, though, isn't it? Well, I mean, here, let me, let's, let's get concrete about it, and maybe we can kind of make some progress on it. So, so let's take the violent video game stuff, right? Yeah. And let's suppose that maybe the entire court is committed to the idea that if you can show that there's real scientific harm here, then some kind of intermediate scrutiny evaluating restrictions on access to minors of violent video games is warranted, right? So we're not going to make it immediately fatal and we're not going to just rubber stamp a restriction either, right? Because the, you know, if you could show that there is some harm there, then you could see, think regulation would be justified. So, so assume you have that view of the constitution, that that kind of fact matters. Mm-hmm. So the question is like, how are we going to decide whether violent video games have a negative impact on minors? That is at once a scientific question. But it also now is a question which is a, in a, an important and, and crucial input into the formation of, of, of rules, legal rules. And who decides it? And who, who decides it and how and by what process? See, in, mm-hmm. in, in science, that would be maybe a consequence of a larger theory about um, ideation among adolescents. Or, you, know, you can imagine this is at the level of theory. And you can imagine a whole bunch of experiments which, which support or falsify certain theories of mind and development. Whereas lawyers, my sense is, and I think this is the Zeiler uh, class critique, would take individual experiments about like aggression and minors and would mm-hmm. take those set of experiments and then use them like they use cases. Like, you know, as so-and-so found in this, and they would line yeah, them up. So if there are five studies in favor of that and one study against. Right, that, that is what they do. Yeah, and, and so that, that seems to me a huge disconnect between the search for truth, between science and law, where it's not clear there should be such a disconnect because what's the the critical difference for me is that the Supreme Court's got to decide the case. It can't wait until more evidence comes in. Mm -hmm. And so because the law has been passed by a state, someone is being punished under that law and is saying this punishment is not consistent with the Constitution. Right. So something has to be done today to figure that out. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, how to draw scientific conclusions in an emergency. You know, if you, if, yeah, if you and scientists to. don't normally confront that. They don't normally do that. And so we're trying to create basically a system of science on demand, scientific conclusion on demand. Where, huh, that's interesting. You know, and, and, 
And so we do it in, you know, I, I, we're kind of trying to graft onto the system we already have for finding adjudicative facts or for extending what normally goes on, which is that judges have hunches about the world and we select them. You know, we select hopefully a diverse array of judges on the bench and they have different understandings of the world. This is like the wise Latina woman comment from Sotomayor, right? But they're going to have different hunches and they build you – know, but that's not – you're talking about something different, right? augmenting these through litigation. Or yeah, administrative Jerry, yeah. law. So, I, I mean, yeah. I, I think it's – so help us think, what are the administrative law lessons that that – point in a different direction from judges just kind of grabbing things that confirm their priors or yeah. kind of like, oh, let me go look at the Google, right? What what alternatives right. are there? Well, um, I made an analogy in that one of the pieces, now I can't even remember which one, about the notice and comment rulemaking and using the am amicus briefs or amicus briefs as sort <laughs> of um, the same, sort of in that model, like yeah. the cert petition is the notice. Do, 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 do. I mean, the cert grant is the notice. Like, do, 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 do. we're going to talk about violent video games. And then the amicus briefs come in as the comments. Like, here's what you should do. Here's what you should do. A lot of people think this. A lot of people think that. Here's what the scientists think. And then there's a statement of basis and purpose, which is the opinion. Um, and I see a lot of similarities there. Um, and so, you know, that's maybe that's a way to say, let's not, let's not chuck the whole thing like maybe some people have said the whole we should abolish the amicus like it's not it's it's not good i think the analogy to administrative law can show some value to it if it's maybe used in a more proper way or in a responsible way and i think we should i don't know if we've actually said um maybe, maybe everybody knows but when you talk about the kind of amicus bar the amicus process you're talking about uh, individual, you're talking about individual organizations or perhaps even individuals or groups of individuals who will write briefs for the Supreme Court or even lower courts on a yeah. case in which they are not a party, but they assert they have some interest in the outcome in some way. Yeah. Colbert said it was the legal equivalent of grandparents. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is brilliant. Nice. nice. Um, that's, a, I mean, that's not my joke. That's his joke. Right. Yeah. No, <laughs> and, I, it's, no, and it's a brilliant cool. observation, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so in a typical case at the Supreme Court these days, and you have statistics in the latest paper so about this. Briefs, yeah. So many briefs. Yeah. How many, what's the, do you remember the average? I know you have, there's a high point in the, um, uh, yeah. in the I gay mean, marriage it, it cases. It keeps growing but. up and up. It's, I think the last term, let's see, 800 amicus briefs in 75 cases. I think that's Ooh. right. 98% yeah. of the cases had an amicus brief. There's only one that didn't. Right. Um, and let's see. There were over 800, which is a record. Stunning. And, you know, the, the, the Kearney-Merrill study from 2000 um, about uh, uh, amicus briefing in the Supreme Court sort of, I think, was an important turn in the literature in appreciating, oh, for sure. in appreciating yeah. the intensity of this activity. And it's just be, it just continues to grow and grow and grow. Exactly. It, and there's no sign of it stopping. And now if an administrative agency had to decide a question like do violent video games uh, cause harm to kids because it's a statute which required them to make a rule in case that yeah. were the mm -hmm. case. Well, there's no if about it. Agencies are doing this constantly. They, they do this constantly right? and, and they have a – like. and your reference to notice and comment, Ali, is exactly this. So they would they would propose a rule. They would publish that proposed rule. They would ask for comments. They would get many, many comments, some from cranks, some from respected organizations, sure. some from interested mm – -hmm. they would get a lot of stuff. And, and then it would be full of factual information, right. claims Absolutely. about facts, claims about um, different science, different um, perspectives on that science. Depending on the resources of the agency, they may even do a lot of their own fact finding. Sure. Uh, you have the National Academy of Sciences weighing in sometimes on important questions and right. with this kind of the state of the art. So some agencies sometimes too have to make a decision about which way to go, make it basically a cost-benefit analysis in yeah. the face of unknown costs and unknown benefits uh, because the science isn't all in. So they, they do that, but they do it through this process of, 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 of notice and comment. And in your, in your latest paper, Ali, you, I, I don't, you don't, I, in the earlier paper, you made this analogy more directly, but the analogy is there, right? That the, the yeah, Supreme Court is doing there. kind of the same thing, but instead of like one agency, which is publicly accountable, which is kind of aggregating all of these facts and is, trying, is stating what we think is the case based on all of this and, and it has a responsibility to respond to some of these substantial comments. Instead, uh, the Supreme Court is using all of these um, uh, all of these inputs, which are typically ginned up by the parties, right? They are mm -hmm. somehow organized by the parties. And, they are, and, and instead of like public accountability for the factual record, there is instead a kind of economy of trust. Um, which works between the court and the bar, 
Yeah. And, and kind of this the, the rise of both the repeat player boutique Supreme Court practice and the rise of amicus briefs is kind of going hand in hand to create this, you know, it's it's kind of a, an ad hoc mechanism for agency fact finding where instead of being responsible public agents, these are private parties with all kinds of interests. But there's a, this economy of trust, which may be helping to weed out, you know. And and you even point in, in, to the um, to the one instance where um, uh, an advocate was called to task for something that they had claimed, which was false That's in an earlier. Thing. Yeah, do you, yeah. I mean, do I have that story basically right? Yeah, it's, it, it, it was Justice Kennedy, I think, and he said something to the equivalent of, like, you know, why should we believe you this time? Um, yeah, that's that was a that's a turn in my thinking is the last piece about the value of the bar um, as sort of a assuming that we're going to have this new world of amicus briefs and assuming that some of them are going to have unreliable claims in it, what, what can we do? Like what's, what's the solution? How do we stem the trouble? How do we stem the concerns? Um, and you know, I'll be honest with you. My original thought, um, when I started writing this amicus machine piece was how bad is it to have private law firms in charge of uh, informing the justices on these important factual claims because they're not politically accountable. They're not, they're private. They're, you know, they have moneyed interests. Like it's really a bad, bad scene. Um, but my thinking evolved as the president would say. Um, <laughs> and I, I really, after talking to them and perhaps I was captured by my, uh, by my group here that talked to me, there's this really intense, um, reputation market, like guarding their reputations as, as, Supreme Court as rock stars, as as legal rock stars, right? That's what they are. And they don't want to put their name on a bad petition. They don't want to put their name on a crappy brief. Um, so there's this almost this, I don't want to call it natural, but this market that's, uh, that's developed to, I guess, assuage some of my concerns from the earlier piece. And it doesn't capture all of them. The Supreme Court still cites some of the bad stuff. But I think that's at least a step in the right direction that we have some sort of safeguard um, policing this information, which can get unruly when you have 800 briefs a term that certainly it, it's challenging to believe that justices can read them all. Let you me know? just, uh, let me just unpack the mechanism a little bit here. So there, so what you're, what you're saying is that this Supreme court bar, which mm-hmm. is a relatively small number of advocates, many right. of the ones in private practice have experience at the solicitor general's office. Correct. And what, what connects all of these actors is in this market for reputation, there's sort of an invisible hand. The public interest is in accurate information. The private interest they have in maintaining a reputation for being purveyors of accurate information. You don't want to be the one who's found out to have delivered them a brief full of junk, right? Right. So that that private action winds up vindicating the public interest in accurate information. You, I should have written that. That's what, way better than the way I just explained it. But that's one good. one one could say that. One could say maybe that's what's happening. Cite the yeah. show in your next piece, Sally. Cite. Okay, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, word for word. That was good. Um, I have the, I have the Adam Smith nickname so on this show, so uh, it was it, it behooved me to mention the invisible hand. But um, but but it's 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 an interesting idea, and it, and it does it does kind of thread the SG experience into the private bar mm-hmm. they they have this consciousness of a of a of a the fact that as repeat players precisely because they are repeat players they have to look to a kind of accuracy standard that a one shot player would not worry about perhaps yeah, as much mhm that's what i came to think right <laughs> huh. yeah i hmm. i so so um so two things one one is in a way, this is this strikes me kind of like um, the longstanding kind of Posner and other effort to prove the common law is efficient just by showing it doesn't matter like whether judges know even know what efficiency is because inefficient rules get litigated out over time because inefficient rules are litigated more often. Yeah. And so things which are facty but not fact. Oh, I'm glad you said facty. That yeah. makes me happy. Well, no, that's gonna you be can the cite show, us too. That's going to be the show title. Yeah. There's no facty? <laughs> there's no question. Yeah. I've okay. already decided that it's a long facty. time ago. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so there's something in common with that that I, you know, that's a thread I 
thought about that would be fun to kind of pull on uh, at another time. Uh, but the, the other thing, I'm reminded of this piece by Bill Eskridge, which uh, about uh, bonded interpretation, statutory interpretation, where um, – and I, I forget the title of it. I use it in my class and I can't remember the title. That just shows the state of my mind. Yeah. But uh, he, where he gives one of the one of the nicest kind of descriptions of public choice theory and its connection with um, – judicial analysis that I've seen, right? That, that, you know, there's this problem with, uh, with diffuse costs, diffuse benefits versus sharp costs and sharp benefits, which makes the legislature not an ideal vehicle for public interest litigation. I mean, for, pu- for public interest legislation, right? Because when there are very diffuse benefits from legislation, but the costs will be sharply felt by, say, regulated industry, you're just never getting anything through Congress, right? right? And actually, the more you do in kind of the framers model of kind of dividing institutions, the more hurdles, the more choke points you set up for public interest uh, right. Uh, legislation, right? So it, it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating piece. But he suggests that um, courts could be relatively more immune from that kind of public choice problem precisely because they tend to level the playing field, right? There's one side versus another side. I mean, it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's not perfect because, of course, you spend more money on litigation and, you, and maybe you can get a better result. But, but there's a little bit more leveling. It's not like, you know, you're one of 800 people in the Senate cloakroom and 799 of them represent, leg- uh, you know, uh, regulated industries. You know, there's going to be a defendant and a plaintiff, even though they may have a lot more people. And there's a, it's a really interesting article about how all cool. this stuff, uh, you know, um, uh, gets through. And, I, and I'm wondering, you know, so the claim that the invisible hand of the reputation market is going to help us ensure that only the good facts um, or mainly the good facts get in front of the Supreme Court also depends on there not being a kind of selection bias. What, what did I say? You, you just you, you, you stated it in, in a way that was so much stronger than the claim I made. I do not want to be associated with the way you just said it. You, you caricatured it even by summarizing. I, I think, it. So, I, well, I, I think we're going to put in front of the show from now on, in addition to theme music, uh, just a standard disclaimer that Joe does not agree with anything that's said on this show, even the, <laughs> even the stuff he actually says. Uh, no, but, uh, the, but no, but the, but the claim, but the, the worry would be that there is selection bias in terms of how the facts are being presented. Mm. And and you I, in the piece, I forget how you come back at this alley. It, you, it's not that you don't. Um, well, it's you, predicated you know, on the theory of accuracy. Well, this is your earlier point, right? I think. Well, well, I think in the piece, Ali argues that the you know because a standard claim is that business interests will dominate the yeah that's uh, the right, concern. and then you say, well, look at look at Pam Carlin's uh, and and, yeah. and Fisher's like litigation, like these are the yeah. I think the way I've in my mind, the way I think about it is once the court grants cert, there you get heavy weights on both sides of the V, right? You you, you because there's so few cases and there's so many. Supreme Court practices hungry for those cases, you're going to get good advocates most of the time, um, every time the court grants cert. Because there's just everybody wants, everyone wants a piece, everyone wants a piece of the pie, right? Everyone wants to be at the Supreme Court table. Um, So I'm less worried about those, the selection bias. I'm less worried about that on the merit stage. At the cert stage, however, I, I do think there's still cause for concern because I think uh, what you're calling selection bias is is happening there because um, the the business interests, the Supreme Court law firms are the ones looking down the pike. Like they they are, as Justice Kennedy said, I think a step ahead of the justices in knowing what cases are coming, and so there might be um, a sort of an influence. Now we we push back in our article a little bit about putting the cart before the horse there. There's concerns that it's the bar that's causing the justices to be pro-business. And we say, well, maybe the bar is, is taking their signals from the justices. It's the justices that are pro-business. And I, th- I think that's right. Um, that was my co-author's point. I think, I think that's right. Um, but I do think that there's a difference between the cert stage and the merit stage when it comes to the our normative concerns about the influence of the Supreme Court bar. Can I push back just a little bit on that and see? Sure. And see, I, you, you may have a really good answer to this. That, um, but uh, even if we, so this is trying to figure out whether the justices are are inherently pro business and and therefore receptive to these cases, or whether they're being influenced by things. And um, you know, I, I get that they have you know individual ideological slants, like we all do. Mm-hmm. Um, but but don't you think that that uh, in an environment, um, well, like like many of us, what we think of as debatable depends on what people are debating, right? And so if yeah, if a bunch of cases come in and and the ones which are well lawyered 
like even if we know, like even if I know in advance that the one of the reasons they're well lawyered is because there are sharp interests on one side, right, rather than these diffuse interests that we uh, talk about in public choice theory, like I can't help but like think that you know the the important issues are the ones that people are fighting about. It, it's yeah. it's what drives me to crazy about like the presidential election right now, right? It's yeah. like we're debating. But there's all the sort dumb of an issues. Overton window for cert petitions, yeah, and and the exactly. way that lawyers get drawn to these issues, yeah, and and so. It, it, do you think that's happening or do, or do your data suggest that, in fact, it really is? No, I, like- think, I think it's happening, but I think it's limited. So um, when we went through and looked at the search stage amicus briefs, which is a really that's a new thing um, that more than anything we uncover in that paper, the activity at the search stage for. Uh, Supreme Court amici. Look, I'm alternating when I say amici or amicus. This um, is the, the stage at which the Supreme Court selects whether yeah, which case is going to hear. stage, yeah. exactly. That that has really increased significantly, doubled in the past ten years. Mm. And um, when you looked at those briefs, you see there's de- you definitely have an increased chance of getting a cert grant if you have a friend, if you have an amicus brief at the cert stage, at the jurisdiction stage. But there's also like a little bit of a like a glass ceiling almost. Um, so even though the number of briefs have doubled, the chances of getting a cert grant haven't increased that much. So it seems like there's a cap on how much influence those amicus briefs can have at the jurisdictional stage, which makes makes me think, this is just speculation, but the decision to grant cert is so multifarious. I mean, there's so many things going into the justices' minds. And yes, the existence of amicus briefs from those Supreme Court lawyers is something, but it's just not all of it. So it's not the whole deal. So I do think it influences, but I don't think it's determinative or the reason for the pro-business turn. Right? I think there's a limit on the influence. And when the Supreme Court selects cases, I mean, not every justice. I'm not, is every justice in the cert pool now that Justice no, Stevens? No, Justice Alito is not. Alito is not. I, yeah, I thought that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I knew there was someone who wasn't. There I, used to there used to be Justice Stevens. There's always one that's out. Yeah. So th- you have individual law clerks reading these things and writing a memo for yep. for, for everybody and. So is there a ceiling on on the degree to which having um, multiple briefs, amicus briefs in addition to the main briefs, which are arguing, hey, Supreme Court, you should take the case, is the degree to which uh, having any amicus briefs at all on their help, is, the, is that where the glass ceiling is or is it on the number of, of briefs? Because so, I could certainly understand that more briefs are, are not going to make this more likely. So if there are like eight. Oh, amicus yeah. briefs, like the, the, your your limited resource there is the law clerk's time. So you're saying it's mediated through the body of the one law clerk who's doing the pool memo. Who's like, I, you know, more to read is not necessarily better, right? <laughs> right. right? No, I think both are true. I think there's, you know, if you have one of the lawyers we talked to said you have to have three, but anything more than three is just gravy. But you have to have three to make a difference. I don't know where that number comes from, but that's like, <laughs> that's what we were told. And um, so I think that's part of it. But the limit I'm talking about is something else. Like, um, if you look at how likely you are to get a grant, you know, just if you were just a cert petition in a big stack of cert petition, I mean, let's see if I can pull it. It's like 2% or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas if you have a amicus with you, at least three, I guess, but if you have the way we looked at the numbers, we didn't use that rule of three. We just looked at if you have one, if you have at least one amicus brief at the cert stage, your this is like it's about ten percent, right? Ten percent more, yeah. There's ten percent more likely to get a cert grant, right? But wait, then, wait, 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 it, wait. Hold, hold on. Is it uh, is it ten percent more likely, or the, do they grant ten percent of petitions? Ten oh, percent. I think it's um. It goes from. Let me pull it up. Yeah, I think it goes from two uh, percent to about ten percent. Oh, it's twelve. Petition. Two to twelve. Yeah. Yeah, so but 10%. you do two years on there, right? And and there's an interesting yeah. variation between those two years. Which is what that's what I was just about to say. That's okay. where I think the glass ceiling is. So. It's yeah. it's nineteen percent in two thousand five and twelve percent in two thousand fourteen. That's the that's when you have the brief, which means even though the number of amicus briefs doubled in that ten years, yeah. right at the third stage, yeah. your ch- your your chance of success didn't double. In fact, it went down. Hmm. So so that's my way of saying I think there's some sort of limit on the influence that the bar is having on the on the docket. And of course, we're dealing with relatively small numbers here. Once you start take, talking true. about 10% of grants, you're talking about like seven or eight cases, right? right? Um, and, and so you're going from, but, but going from 15 to seven, that might be, and again. Uh, we had to look at all of the, we had to look at all of the petitions, the yeah. ones that had the briefs and the ones that didn't. Yeah. And, and I would imagine this year, now that we're down to eight and the Supreme Court is going to have weird reasons for accepting or rejecting cases, like that's yeah. going to make p- the job of people like you a lot harder, isn't it? 
probably. (laughs) (laughs) There is now this confounding reason, which is like defies any normal kind of rational actor model of of judging. Yeah. Yeah. I think the court is also. This is now we're way off the topic, but I. But but that's one what thing, your listeners want. Though. Yeah, this is this is when we get to the good stuff. <laughs> it's just one thing that I've been thinking a lot about because of the court's um, uh, greater interest in patent cases since the mid '90s yeah. and, and IP cases more generally. I knew patent would come up that, somehow. <laughs> that I, I I think that they, and I, I I'm not claiming that they're aware of it, but but I think there must be some role played by uh, the overall tenor of a term and looking for things where they have a sense that there'll be more agreement. I think that's totally right. There might be disagreement among the lower courts, but instances where, you know, they're looking for the share of nine O's where they get to make points about judging and about craft of judging and about legal process and the sort of American legal consensus, right? Mm -hmm. That balances out the stuff where they know it's going to be 5-4. They know it's going to be acrimonious. There's going to be weird social issue stuff going on, abortion, gay rights, blah, blah, blah. Do you think they, you they think, want the st- they want the stuff that yeah. that balances things out. And I think to a certain degree, business cases uh, offer them stuff they know is more likely to fall into that basket. Do you think they're hmm. thinking of these presentations they know are going to be given rounding up the term where they're thinking of the person standing at the podium saying, in fact, this, you know, the, the, the myth of the five, four divided court is really only a myth. Many cases are divided, decided by unanimity. And that, and therefore that helps us like it, it supports like the legalistic notion of the court rather than the it's, it's more. Like, I don't think they're I don't know. It's more like a homeostasis point where even if you're not consciously aware of it. The the you you the, you na- you will naturally gravitate toward a mix of things. Yeah. So, so you know yeah. that the four you know the five four stuff is there, and you're also looking for things that aren't like that. I wonder if they if they're backing out. What if what if they are backing it out and they want a certain number of nines of cases, <laughs> and, and so they pick the cases they really want to take, and then they just fill it up to get make the numbers hit with uh, with right. EDPA cases out of the Ninth Circuit. The- <laughs> Right, so they can get enough, you know, because there are an unlimited number of nines. But that is in fact, but that in fact is not what the docket looks like, right? Yeah, Yeah. where you've got a, and the rest of it is, oh, we also heard thirty EDPA cases from Judge Reinhardt. (laughs) Like, no, that's actually not what they do. Yeah, now they pick these business, they pick other cases. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What What do you think about that, Allie? Well, I think that your intuition is right. That given the current dynamic, there's going to be an instinct, whether it's conscious or not, to avoid fights. Um. You know, to avoid looking political, to look for a narrow way to decide an issue, to remand, um, and so that's got to that's got to filter into their decisions with their docket. It's just got to, or, or even if it's not to avoid fights, it's to make the fights look like they're abnormal rather than normal. Because you know, I think yeah. what the court wants, to, you know, in, in in terms of its legitimacy, wants to be seen as a legalistic institution and not the same as Congress. And one way you do that is to, although we have bitter disagreement, we agree more often than not. Yeah, that's right. And it's, and and Joe's point, I think, is that 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 case selection can reinforce that point. Yeah, there's because, also, I mean, maybe this is this is could just be this is just speculation. But when I, I clerked in 2005, which was the last time that a sitting justice passed away, and there's a sense, sort of, a, they're they're a little fragile. There's a sense of like, um, you know, there's lots of colleagues, so. I think that adds to the don't make waves principle, like try to get along more than you fight. Uh, it's almost like a natural human tendency. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and a not, uh, there's not unlimited appetite for risk. I mean, if you, yeah, if, if right. you gravitate toward everything being, if you wanted everything to be five, four, you wouldn't be sure you'd always be in the five and not in the four. Another That's way to say this might be, we're not all William O. Douglas. In other words, we're not all raging jerks. Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> is there is there is there a Supreme Court uh, justice, past or present, that you have not insulted on this show? I'm I'm working my way through the you, list. You are, but <laughs> Allie, I don't know if you know people, but I want to get the I want to let people know that uh, if you are a Supreme Court justice, this is to our audience of Supreme Court justices, and you uh, want to yes. appear on the show, you can always and and look if you get in touch with me and you say I want to come on, but Joe's a jerk and I don't look, we'll get him out of here. Yeah, for, you'll for totally get rid of me. Yeah, you <laughs> will throw only, me under the bus. Only in that case. You will not just throw me under the bus. You will tie me to the ba- to the bottom of the bus. Do you know how many times, though, you've said, just do this show without me? And I say, no, the show is you and me, Joe. I'm never going to do a show. Okay. This is the exception of that rule. Right. There's the, I'll call it the Justice Alito exception 
to the normal rule. I'm reminded of the exchange in the live-action version of 101 Dalmatians when Glenn Close <laughs> in the in, in the character of Cruella Deville um, uh, says to her assistant, "What kind of sycophant are you?" And the assistant says, "What kind do you want me to be?" Uh, you are that person. Oh my, Christian. that's not. For the Supreme Court justices, you are that person. You're, you're have, willing to throw me under the bus. I just want to have a conversation with them. I know. So do I. I. Wouldn't, I would not. You know, I, I'm not a sycophant, am I? <laughs> Please a tell mystery me. For, a mystery for our listeners. <laughs> no, no. It's facty. It's facty. You can't change that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Allison, you've been so wonderful to join us. It's it's really been great to talk to you. These papers are just awesome. They're a model of, of scholarship and probity. Wow, and that's so nice. Engagement. <laughs> and people should read them. They're really great. And over time, it, they're, they're a model for like how to teach people about an area and like why you should care about something. Yeah. And then for highlighting not just your one theory, but different ways of thinking about it and, and the way that that thoughts about that can evolve over three here. Is it three papers that mainly form this arc that we're going to think that's right. Yeah. There, there's, I, I have a paper that's related about sort of facts changing over time, the Shelby yeah. County paper. Yeah. But yeah, this is, I think it's, um, it's a, the tortoise and the hare, right? If you think through a problem slowly, <laughs> You'll still get there, even though it all just got a lot longer. <laughs> that's right. That awesome. Tortoise in the hair, another good. Yeah, so many show titles. We're just going to save these for later. <laughs> I think I'd feel vindicated if Facty was in the title because I get teased about using that word in scholarship. <laughs> well, you'll be teased no more because our show, which is normative within the world of uh, of law schools, of Indeed. course, right? I mean, we because uh, we are America's faculty colloquium. We are blessing the word Facty. Yay! So. Boom. Boom. Big for me. Yeah. yeah. Put this at the top of your resume. Uh, it'll, uh, you know, be teased no more. Terrific. Thanks so much, Allie. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Talk to you next time.